It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today, my guest and I are going to discuss something that I've never really delved into quite like this before. I think I've maybe skimmed the surface about this topic of female rivalry through a few experiences that I've had. As a woman, I certainly felt moments of (laughs) feeling like I'm in competition with other women, or I feel like unsupported or judged. Certainly, I think a lot of people, regardless of of their gender, will experience bullying or not feeling like they fit in. And if they identify with a specific gender, then maybe they either feel closer or farther away from other people like them. And that can lead to feelings of isolation. And I think I was very drawn to this topic of female rivalry because I've noticed that I tend to get nervous around other women, especially in professional settings. And part of my experience with my career, especially when I was working in film production, is I was one of very few women in film production, especially at film school when I went. There just weren't a lot of women in that field. I think that's probably changed, hopefully. But for a long time, maybe they women just didn't feel like they could thrive or they were interested. I think the evolution of social media and video creation has certainly resonated with a lot of women. But the business side of it, I think, can feel really daunting. And even though we've come such a long way with the embracing different genders and even non-binary, I think we still have a lot of work to do to dismantle the patriarchy and misogyny and and these issues that have influenced how a lot of people feel with their careers in the workplace. And I wonder sometimes, maybe a good starting place for us, Amber, is do you feel like female rivalry is rooted in or, or influenced, I should say, by this fear that there's not enough room because women may have felt like they've had to fight so hard to be taken seriously that they feel threatened by other women because maybe that makes them feel like there's not enough room for us both? That is a great first question. And I think you're right on with it. I think that's part of it, that there's that feeling of not enough room at the top. I think there are several influencing factors. I think it's society tends to make fun of female rivalry. It's lighthearted. It's something to make fun of. Make fun of. It's a cat fight. It's women being dramatic. It's much more serious than that because it can have huge altering effects. And if it escalates, it's a form of a bullying behavior. So I think society influences it. I think the room at the top, I think it might be how you are raised. When I first dove into researching this topic, there were really foundational theories to relate to about it. So I had to go back to theories of aggression. And so if you look at young boys and young girls, 
boys are taught that it's okay to rough house and, you know, rough and tumble and go belt it out. Girls were taught to sit, be pretty, look nice, sit on the couch, be still, don't make waves. And so it's a combination. Boys usually have a more overt or direct way of aggression, while girls are traditionally more indirect. And that stems from social intelligence that starts around eight or nine in girls. But yeah, there's a lot of influencing factors for this type of behavior. It's fascinating, especially that part about people making light of it and it almost becoming a form of entertainment. Like on television, you know, we see a lot of women being pit against each other, probably more so than men, to be honest. I mean, certainly I think media portrays men as aggressive and like they kind of battle and they tough up, but it's like it almost feels like it's taken seriously. And my perception off the top of my head with women is that it's seen as like this funny thing. It's seen as frivolous and superficial and like, oh, you'll get over it. But I'm sure so much of your work is rooted in the long lasting effects of it. I was thinking about this time when I was at a job. So for context, I haven't worked in a traditional job for, I think this year, 2022 will be 10 years since I left my, my last official job before I started freelancing and working for myself. And many years before that time, when I was working in the film industry, I had this job at a production office that I was really excited about. It was a really great company. I had a pretty substantial role there. And one day, this woman got upset with me over what I perceived to be a really small thing. And clearly for her, it was not small. You know, I have the maturity now to look back and like honor the fact that she was upset by it. In that moment, I wasn't quite at that place mentally, but I felt so deeply attacked. And she actually pitted a number of other women against me. You know, at this point, I was many years out of college. So I like feeling like an adult. She was older than me and literally turned that job into the worst scenario. And I remember feeling like I was like maybe the next day or later on that day. I don't remember the timing exactly, but there was a moment where it was lunchtime and everyone was sitting at a table and I felt completely ostracized, much like you hear these cliche stories of high school with kids going through this stuff. You don't think that you would go through it as an adult. And I even turned to another woman that was higher up at the company for help and she didn't help me. In fact, the woman that caused the issue found out that I went and accused me of tattletaling and was angry at me for reporting her. And basically, I felt completely alone in having to deal with this type of bullying. And it was all women. I don't think there was a single man involved. And there were men at the company, but none of them even tried to help. I felt like nobody came to my defense or my aid. And I didn't have any tools to deal with it. And I still think about that sometimes to this day, even though it doesn't have any connection to me. Like I don't work in that business. I don't know those people anymore. There's, But the trauma, that long lasting psychological impact of feeling bullied and feeling ganged up on by other women was really rough. It's an awful feeling. And you coined it with one word, feeling alone, because so often when women experiencing are experiencing this type of behavior, you lose your voice, you feel alone. Often you can turn to somebody and you're shut down. So that makes you 
wilt further. And it's so interesting. It would be interesting to know if the men truly saw what was occurring. Sometimes it's like the ostrich with the head in the sand, but it's sometimes I don't think it's purposeful. I think men traditionally don't act that way, but sometimes there are certain people that don't want to rock the boat. So they just continue with the status quo. But that woman could have handled it in so many different ways. She could have pulled you aside. You could have talked about it rather than going to other people. And so it makes me think by the story you're relaying that she probably was threatened by you to a degree. You're younger than she is. You're coming in. For some reason, she was threatened or uncomfortable. And so that was her out was to put you in the negative spot, which is not right at all. And that's why society making fun of this or you see the reality shows you're right. It's often more women than men. I don't, I can't even think of one where men are pivoting against each other, but with females, it's all the time. And it's so not something to be made fun of. I have had women, I've had, I've collected hundreds of interviews. And when women tell me that they don't have female friends or they will never work for another woman, or they will never work on a team of all women ever again, that's tragic. We're half of the population. And so it's telling that there is something more to this behavior. I call it the elephant in the boardroom. It's a toxic behavior. And when you encounter it, I don't care what age you are. So often we put it in that little bundle of it happens in high school or grade school. It's ongoing. It hap- I've seen it with women in their 60s. It occurs all the time at any age. And we are so much better together. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, it's really interesting to reflect on it and and to think about also why that happens, right? Is it that, I mean, I also have to take responsibility for my role in this when I've been on the other side, because I've certainly had a history of of being a little bit gossipy. And a few years ago, maybe even 10 years ago now, but I remember there was like one turning point where I thought, this is not serving me or others to gossip. And I've had to like really rein it in. And it's something I feel like you have to practice. So if it was in fact 10 years ago, maybe it was somewhere between five or 10 years ago, I decided I'm going to work on not gossiping. And the fact that it's been so many years and I still feel like I have worked to do shows how hard it is to stop because we get these feel good emotions when we do things like gossiping. And I read how that often is because we're trying to get closer to other people and there's something about commiserating that we like to do socially. And it's like, oh, this person doesn't like that person either. Let's talk about how we don't like this other person. And it's so tempting. It feels so good. And I think when we are raised and that's become so commonplace, we don't see anything wrong with it. But I had to rein myself in because it was only that temporary hit right? It was like, okay, this feels good for like a few seconds, a few minutes. And then there's usually that crash afterwards when you finish gossiping where you might feel guilty. And then the worst that happens is if somebody finds out that you're gossiping, because that has also a long lasting impact. And that was part of the wake up call for me is, do I want to be someone who is not trusted? Do I want to be someone who's known, who has a reputation for gossiping about others? And Absolutely, I don't want to be. I was only gossiping under the idea that it was just between me and somebody else, right? As if nobody would ever hear. But I think we've also all been on the receiving end of hearing about gossip that wasn't intended for us to know about. 
So it's if I've known about other people gossiping about me, then I'm sure people know that I've gossiped about them. Totally agree. It's something like that's a self-check and hats off to you for recognizing it. I've, d- I've done the same because, you know, it doesn't feel good to be on the receiving end. And really, it kind of makes you feel icky right after you're doing it, too, because what's the purpose? But I call women who like themselves like other women. That's really kind of the crux of what I feel. You rarely see somebody that doesn't like themselves not like other women. So I'm it's always like what you said, Whitney, take that first step and do like a self-check. So I call it your inner she bully, that little voice that's on the back of your, you know, like that voice that's chatting back here and saying, blah, 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 you're not good enough. Well, deal with her first or him or who, whatever you call that individual, because chances are that's influencing how you are treating other people. The second part is just do a check of your surroundings. How are you contributing to the behavior? Are there cultural things? Are there other influences. Did you grow up differently than this individual? You know, like if somebody's truly out to get you and they are a mean girl or a mean person, chances are that might be an innate behavior in them. But there are also just on the off chance, be mindful of how you could be a trigger to that person and take it from there. Like just look inward. And so, and then know the third thing is You have no control over somebody else's behavior towards you. What you have control over always is your own behavior. And that's how you can keep yourself in check and learn to understand. It's hard to deal with this behavior. It completely sucks. If you've been on the receiving end, I have. It's awful. And it can shrink you, for lack of a better word. But you remember, you do remember how you were saying some of these things happened to you 10 years ago, but they still feel fresh. It's because it's that emotional trauma. And you can take that as a lesson and know how you don't want to treat other people because you know what it feels like to be on the receiving end. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love what you said about women who like themselves like other women. And I had to pause there, honestly, because I thought, wow, you know, I recognize that I often feel threatened by other women. Is that the result of trauma and fear? Have I developed mistrust? I've even felt that with people who have feminine qualities, it doesn't necessarily have to be a gender issue. It could just be somebody who's very feminine that often feels a little bit uncomfortable. And I look for an opportunity to connect with them. I feel like I'll, if I'm meeting a new woman, I am on high alert in the beginning. And it will take seconds sometimes for me to ease in. Like for you, with you, Amber, like I, you showed up, I immediately felt at ease with you. We talked for a little bit. I was like, great. And a lot of times you can tell, I think this is an important part of it too, is even through emails. You know, I, I remember feeling good when I emailed with you. I felt good when I saw your photo. Like all of, there's certain signals to even like, somebody's body language, their voice, the words that they use, like that's also important to remember too, because we convey so much about ourselves to other people that may seem very subtle. And there are certain qualities about women and feminine people that I immediately tense up around. It'll be, first of all, if a woman looks like she spent a lot of time on her appearance, for me, that's a trigger and probably related to what you were saying I'm still working through a lot of feelings that I have around beauty and all the societal pressure that women have. And most of my life, I think I felt uncomfortable around women who spend a lot of time on their appearance because 
I see that as a sign that I need to spend more time on my appearance. Or maybe, you know, you fall into that comparison of, do I look as pretty as she does? Does she like the way that I look? Does she think that I'm weaker than her? That comes up for me a lot. And I'm curious about that, Amber, is in my head, I'm afraid if a woman doesn't like the way I look that she perceives me as weak. What do you think about that? That's a huge statement. Wow. I don't know if I've, I haven't thought of it like that directly, but I can relate to that too. I like to get, you know, there are days I get up and put my hat on and don't get ready. You know what I mean? Like, and those are great days too. I am such a type A person that I get up, make my bed, you know, and I get ready because that's my shower is how I get energized. But I don't think like, I don't judge other people by how they look, but I know there are people that do. Or if you flip it, there are women that are threatened if somebody is totally put together that they feel less than. They're not enough or they're like an appearance changes who you are inside. I don't think that's true. But for a lot of people, personal appearance is their first and foremost. It's what, like you said, we connected instantly when we started talking. But even in email, I felt that there was a positive energy, like a correspondence. So your appearance, I don't know if it's as an energy as much as that. It's that first, what's my word I'm thinking of? It's your first perception of what that is. Same thing if you look at a website, like, and it's like kind of messy and not all put together and you go to it and you're like, oh, I don't want to deal with that because it seems like it's hard to maneuver or whatever. Appearances, people take that at the first value. Is it always correct? Absolutely not. But I think there's a lot of weight that's placed on that. Unfortunately, the appearance and energy side of it is is interesting too, because right? I absolutely agree. When I'm around a woman, if I feel uncomfortable around the way she looks, it's usually a reflection of my discomfort with myself. I've also noticed the opposite. By the way, there are moments, and I'm not proud to say it, similar to the gossiping, where I might see a woman and go, "Oh wow, like I feel prettier than her." But it it's like a power thing. And I don't, to me, that is the reason I'm not proud is because I don't want to live my life in comparison. That's probably one of the biggest parts of your work, right? As the rivalry side of it is the comparison is a big part of rivalry. Is that true? It's there are so many faucets of it. So it's rivalry, it's competition, it's comparison. And women judge other women based on perception. So it's in we, like how we feel about ourselves is based on our relationships with other women, our mothers, our sisters, our colleagues, our friends, people we don't know, but see in the media. Unfortunately, it's true. So everything you just said, I can totally relate to. I've been there, done that as well. And it's a daily thing. It's that she bully talking to you. And should we be doing that? No, but it's normal. I think it's accepting each other, but first and foremost, it's accepting yourself. Because if you are feeling good about yourself, I find I'm less compelled to compare myself with other people. It's always going to be there to a little bit, just like anything, you know, it's like a daily thing you're working on or a weekly thing, but the comparing, the judging, I mean, if you're constantly comparing, it squishes you down. You feel less than because you don't ever feel like you're good enough. But when you stop the comparison or the judging game, you're happier in your own skin, you know, yeah, I'm not perfect. I have flaws, lay it all out there, but this is who I am and 
I love me for who I am. Sure, there's always things to work on, but I'm not perfect and neither are you. No one is. I also think it's so important to really look at the power dynamics too, because I think that's why I feel uncomfortable around the appearance of other women is because I feel like going back to that weakness. I think I was raised and I heard messaging like this from other women, whether it was my mother, but this other woman that I was really close to growing up. I remember her saying to me when I think I was either going into college, somewhere around like my the beginning of my college experience, she said something like, I don't remember her exact words, but it was this idea of like, it's a good thing you're pretty. That'll be a work to your advantage. And I remember at the time feeling uncomfortable with that statement because I did certainly do not want to be defined by my appearance. I think that beauty is so simultaneously universal, but it's always in the eye of the beholder. So it's like interesting when someone points out your appearance because it's very relative. And beauty, of course, to the societal viewpoints of it tends to be very fleeting. So to me, I'm concerned about emphasizing my appearance given it's constantly going to change and fluctuate as I age, as I go through different things in life. Like It's not a permanent thing. So why would I want to define myself and my power around that. And that's also tying into my feelings about other women who spend a lot of time on their appearance. Because it's like, I don't want to live in a world where that's so emphasized. No, I agree. It's, I think beauty, yeah, there's all different ways to define it. There's, you know, the superficial beauty, there's the beauty's only skin deep. But I think beauty is what you can do for others and how you're can help people and what is your passion and your message and your purpose, you know, like there's so many other things that aren't superficial, which is why when I look at female rivalry, it's like, why should we can be competing about looks or, you know, there's positive competition. I think it's good to have some, I think it can make you be better and do better. And it can make you more purposeful. But I think, you know, when it escalates to where it's not, that's when it turns into a rivalry. But to cut yourself off other people because you're fearful that they may be better than you or you're judging them or I'm not good enough, so I I don't feel strong enough to associate with you type of thing. It's sad. I look at the female groups I have, you know, either my close family or my close friends or different networking groups or working women, whatever. And these women are amazing. And I feel high after being around them because what we can do together is so great and they make me be a better person. And so I think with, I think that's a beautiful thing. If you can be with somebody and they are outside of their box and they know that they are helping you but again, it, it comes back around because if you have a tribe or a circle or people that you are uplifting and making better, they in turn will do the same for you. Absolutely. And this idea of that rising tide lifts all, all ships mentality that I wonder if in your research, you've come across reasons behind rivalry in general, like aside from the gender issue, why do rivalries exist? Is that something that you've studied? Because I feel like it's such a human tendency historically. We have war, we have battles. I think it's usually related to power. And it makes me uncomfortable because deep down, I would so much rather things be peaceful, but I don't know enough and I haven't researched it. Are there benefits to rivalry? And why are they so persistent 
why is so much of our society built around competition? You bring up a good point. I don't know that I've ever studied the benefits of a rivalry. I think I have in the terms of a friendly competition, because that can, I think, motivate you to be better. But rivalry, competition. So when I started doing my research, there wasn't just a female rivalry definition. What I found it stems from is, like you said, power, the need for control. Almost always it stems out of insecurity about yourself or not liking yourself, not feeling like you fit in. So you put on a shell or an armor to act or be something or someone that you are not. It could very well be an environment in which you are raised in. Maybe you grew up with women. And again, I'm not excluding men, but I just have only studied women. But this could be the same for men. You grew up in a, an environment where there was always competition and you just that one up. Maybe you grew up in an environment where you were never enough. And so a psychologically unsafe environment. So you always had to prove yourself like there's so many different faucets to it. But it's in an environment where you, you don't feel good about yourself or you maybe didn't feel safe. And so you're always striving to be more than or searching for what it is that makes you happy. And as a result, other people or other things get in the way of that. That's fascinating. It makes so much sense because you keep coming around to the self-esteem side of things and the insecurity. And it's interesting to reflect upon because when I think about myself, I can see how they've absolutely fueled some of this. And I am grateful that you pointed that out when I gave that example of that woman at the workplace who, in my perception of it, bullied me because I didn't really think about her as a human being. I was thinking about her as a villain. And I think that I have a tendency in those situations, and maybe that's a normal human reaction is like, you perceive yourself as a victim and they're the villain and you can't understand why they would do something because you're too busy focused on your own hurt. No, I think it's true. I sometimes call the other woman the vicious vixen (laughs) because it feels that way. And trust me, I've been on the receiving end of this. I'd lightly had it occur before I had done my research, you know, little exclusions or the queen bee or different personas of this female rivalry figure. But I got my degree in it. I've my background's in an organizational psychology. So I for my dissertation, I had to write on something that was occurring in the working environment. And I saw this happening and nobody was talking about it. So that's when I dove into interviewing these women that just told me these crazy stories. So then fast forward, I've gotten my PhD and I'm still collecting stories because I'm realizing it just doesn't happen at work. It just is it happens amongst women. And I'm in a working situation and I am knee deep in a rivalry situation. I didn't see it. Probably lasted for six months. And I was shocked. My mom actually said to me, I hate to see how you're doubting yourself all because of this other woman. And I had, if I was a cartoon character, I would have had one of those light bulbs, you know, (laughs) on top of my head. And I'm like, oh my God, if it's happening to me and I've studied it, And I lost my voice and I didn't know how to talk about it. And I've got several years under my belt of doing this research. What's it doing to women who don't have any idea about it? Because it can really wear you down. And if it's happening anywhere, it's not like, for example, if it's occurring at work, it just doesn't stay at work. You bring it home with you. It was impacting my family life. It was impacting 
other friendships. I became depressed. Like, so it, it does impact your self-esteem and then you do, it's so hard to talk about it or voice it when you're in it, because often the behaviors are so intangible and so passive aggressive that you will doubt yourself and think, well, she just didn't do that to me. Why would she do that to me? I've never done anything to her. Chances are you have not done anything to her at all. And in your situation, she could have talked about you and you could have resolved it, but it sounded like that was the out for her to take. And so you were in her path at the wrong time. And it might not have been, if it wouldn't have been you, it might've been somebody else, but she saw a chance to take you out and she did. So, but it packs a big punch. And so it's, I won't often have women talk about it until much later because when you're in it, it's so hard to voice unless you've documented. It's hard to see a theme and the pattern because it's so, it's kind of just gray. It is. And it's fascinating the more that you talk about it and looking at all the nuances. And one question that comes up is, what do you do in that situation? So let's say if if I could have gone back in time <laughs> to that moment, and which I, I remember, you know, and because there's trauma involved, like I remember exactly where I was standing. I remember where she was. Like I could just like go back in my brain to that moment. And in a way, it might even be therapeutic to think like, okay, I can go back in time and handle things differently. What would you recommend? Or let's say that that situation was happening right now in my life, that exact same thing. I'm at work, a small, a minor issue happens and the woman confronts me with anger and pits everybody against me and I feel uncomfortable in the workplace. What do you recommend in a situation like that? Because you can't control that other person you can only really control your perception of it and what you do. But if you're dependent in a way on other people in a workplace scenario like that, because you're working together, you're part of a team. Like It's not like I could have just gone in there and ignored everybody. I had to be around them. I had to deal with the way that they were looking at me and talking to me. I had to interact with them, communicate with them. You know, The only other option would be to quit. And at the time, that wasn't a reasonable thing for me to do. So how do you handle that situation? It's hard because when you're in it, sometimes, like I said, it's hard to see it. It sounds like you felt it and you saw it. So I think always I would say document, document, document. I mean, notes to yourself, trusted confidant, somebody that you can share. And even if it's just writing notes to yourself or an email to yourself, whatever, or you know, if there is another person. But after a while, because these are such passive aggressive, often behaviors and intangible, but after a while, a pattern will be produced. And so you will see it and you'll think, okay, no, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I didn't imagine that. This is truly something that happened, especially in the beginning. If you, and sometimes it's very hard to talk to the other woman, especially like if you're younger and newer in the workforce and she's somebody senior to you, that's so intimidating. Like, especially if that person has control over your promotional path or your salary put into it. I mean, that's so intimidating. And so if you can talk to her, maybe offsite, like, let's go have a coffee or can we take a little walk? And I had to deal with this with the individual I was dealing with. And I just said, hey, I feel like our communication could be better. What can I do? Or is there, you know, I put it back on me. Is that always the right thing? Especially if you maybe haven't done anything wrong? No, but it helps to start the conversation and it makes her be less on the offense. So 
try that. Have if there's somebody, if it's occurring at work, even if it's occurring in a social situation, again, bringing somebody with you to talk about it. But again, if somebody, I did that before and she completely denied it. She's like, oh, there's, when I brought up the communication, she said, there's no problem, Amber. And then just the next day, like totally went off on me. So I can't express enough how to document. I've had some women take it to HR or someone in senior management, which you mentioned you did, and they weren't believed. And so especially if you're newer in the working environment and you're dealing with senior people, it's just very hard because that will shut you down even more if you're not being received or if they think you're not telling the truth. I've had other situations where HR or other senior leadership are afraid to deal with the perpetrator because the wrath of what she might exhibit. One thing you do not do, like don't record the conversations. If you do, definitely know the state you are in for recording information because there are laws against that and that very state by state. So I know somebody that got fired actually for recording the conversation. The proof was there, but it was just illegal. So I think the document, 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 just to have proof for the it to reveal itself. It's so complicated because there's there's the emotional reaction to, and when you're sharing all this, it sounds so logical. But I remember in that day when it first happened to me, I felt so taken aback. You know, it was the first time I had ever really gone through that. One of the only times in my life I haven't, to my memory, experienced that much. Thank goodness and. I remember when I went to the higher up, I think I was crying. And I remember that feeling of the whole world almost like getting kind of dark and intense. And that experience I've had a few times in my life when something felt traumatizing, right? It was like the survival mode that your body starts to go into and shut down. You can't really think as well. And unfortunately, where I was, this woman worked in the same area. There was nowhere for me to go. Like she sat across from me. And so and that's a lonely feeling. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, now I'd be like, just get up and go, like, excuse yourself. But I, I was in a management role at that point. Like I had to, I was responsible for other people. Like, I don't know if there was an option for me to just get up and go. So I, I just remember sitting at my desk feeling also a lot of shame because other people witnessed it and they didn't come to my defense, other women. And, I felt like I did something wrong and I was so confused because I didn't know that I did something wrong. And all of that feels very clear and obvious to me now. But in that, I guess I should just acknowledge the fact that we're all doing the best that we can, right? I didn't know any better. I didn't have tools. I didn't have support. All I could do was handle it the best I knew how. And if I were to go back and like give myself a message, I would just say that it was okay. I didn't do anything wrong because I didn't intentionally do anything wrong and I didn't know how to handle it. And I think even if what I did hurt this woman, to your point as well, like she was on the defense and clearly something I did bothered her and maybe it had been building up to your point too, Amber. Like what if she had felt some sort of rivalry for a while? What if she had felt threatened by me for a while and I was completely unaware of it until that moment? It sounds like that's the case. It got so many things. Whitney, what you just said, I can relate. I feel them. I'm like, oh, like you, the shame. I have women talk about shame so much because you're ashamed that you didn't do anything, that you didn't speak out about yourself. 
But when you're being squished down and stomped down, you lose your voice. And I think that's the biggest thing with this behavior. If I could share with people, so often when I talk to groups, I'll have like 10 questions at the beginning of a session, like raise your hand if you've experienced this, raise your other hand, stand up. By the end of it, most of the people are standing up in the audience. And it's because they've experienced all the different nuances of this behavior. I recently did a talk to teenage girls and the look on the mom's faces on the circle, you know, the parameter of the circle, they were shocked that their daughters had experienced all this. And I think it's because you said you felt shame. There are bystanders. There are people not doing anything. There are people not sticking up even if they see it. So there's shame in that. Like, why wouldn't you come to my rescue? But this is not talked about. People don't know how to deal with it. Even though your situation may have been 10 years ago, I don't think we've made much progress. Sure, we're starting to, I think, with different things going on in the working environment. I think there's more talk of psychological safety and how to instill that in the working environment. But when you're ostracized or set apart from the group, it's hard to lose, have your voice and it's hard to speak up about it, especially if she is a perceived powerful woman. You know, I mean, it's hard to go up against that. One other thing I forgot to mention, another way to kind of call it out if it's happening, but it's hard to think of again too. Humor also works, you know, like, well, Whitney, I know you didn't mean to call me out. Really? That made me feel bad. But you know, again, it's like using that humor, like you have to be quick on your toes. And I know I'm so good with later thinking, gosh, why didn't I say that? Or why didn't I do this? But it doesn't come to you until later. But it's a very difficult situation to be in. It certainly is. And it's nice to talk about even after all these years ago. I mean, I don't even remember what year that was. It was over 10 years ago. And it's one of those examples of how things can sit with us. And I'm still sorting through it all these years later. I'm still processing it. And I think that's one of the major reasons that we need to be so aware and present to this, whether we're experiencing it or somebody else's, because maybe a listener right now has a a daughter that's going through that or somebody else who's, again, taking the gender out of the equation, like whoever it is could be going through some sort of rivalry and you might need to be there as a support system. So that's another question I have for you, Amber. If somebody in your life comes to you and is going through a rivalry, what is some advice or support that we can offer to others to help guide them through this? Listening is huge. If somebody is able to talk about this, that's a huge first step. Like you said, like you're still processing something that happened over 10 years ago. I can think back like, gosh, I remember in fifth grade, a girl was really mean to me. And when I think about that, I could put myself exactly where I was in my kitchen, feeling all the feels, you know, because when things happen to you psychologically, that pain lasts longer than like, let's say if you broke a bone, you know, that hurts, of course, but the psychological pain stays with you longer. So listen you know, just show this person that you're there for a support, depends on what the situation is, helping them have other outlets to deal with it. If 
you know, maybe they need to end up changing the job. Maybe it's a social group they need to get out of. I mean, maybe it's helping the person build their confidence up to confront. But then you also have to look at it. If somebody is treating you that way, is it worth a confrontation? Like, are they worth your time or energy to even go down that path? Because obviously they're not somebody that truly supports and is an advocate for you. So I think being there in a working environment, I think it's building trust, like showing everybody that you can talk about things. You can have the trust to know that you can be vulnerable and everybody can bring to the table who they are as individuals. Because I think that's when you're talking about psychological safety, it's the act of being able to be vulnerable, being able to be who you are 100% and being accepted for who you are. And having that support system of someone to go to is so helpful too. I, I don't recall who was in my life at the time that I was going through all that at work, but it ties into what we were talking about in the beginning of not dismissing it as something small, because perhaps because of my age and my gender and the situation, people would just say, oh, don't worry about it. But again, looking back in hindsight, I should have worried about it because it had a lasting effect on me. That's not something that you can just get over, that you can just ignore. It's not you know, this advice that makes me so irritated is when someone says just develop a thick skin. Oh, you're too sensitive, which to me, the more I learn about mental health, the more I think that is one of the worst things that you could say to people because everybody is on some sort of spectrum and how they handle hard situations. And someone like me is incredibly sensitive and I can't change that. So to tell me, get over it, develop a thick skin, don't be so upset about it is useless. In fact, it's actually destructive because it puts me into a further place of shame of thinking, wow, I wish I wasn't so sensitive. Wow, I wish I could get over it. I have thin skin. I'm not strong enough. It's like, to your point too, Amber, it, it just diminishes who you are even more in the midst of a challenging situation. I can't stand, get over it. You need to get a thicker skin. No, that hurts. That's more harmful than good. I don't think you feel it. You cannot, no one can help what they feel. You know, like it's a true emotion. And I think to, you kind of have to hug that emotion to understand and deal with it, whether or not it's a positive emotion or a negative emotion, but it's there. It happened. And to get over it, you have to accept it or dwell in it for a little bit to feel it. There are ways to get over it. I mean, I'm an advocate of therapy and talking, and but when you're in this type of situation and you lose your voice, again, like I said, it's hard to talk about it. I think in any social situation, in a work situation, if you can create inclusion, again, going back to the being vulnerable and being who you are, but when you're inclusive to anybody, are you going to be BFFs with everybody? No, but you can always be kind. You can always include. You can always get to know each other as real people at work. Take the time to get to know each other, who your coworker is. So it's not just somebody sitting next to you. That begins to foster trust. And once you know people for who they are, like Whitney, maybe you have three dogs and a, and a cat. And, you know, I know you're going on a road trip to see the national park soon. Like, these personal attributes, that's a real person. You know, you're just not a name to me anymore. So in engaging with authenticity, like all of these things, like you hear these key words, but these are true things like that are real to let you get to know people as people. And then 
when you're more vulnerable, you are more inclined to be more, you know, be there fully, be more productive, be yourself totally and vice versa. When you touched upon the word BFF, it reminded me of something I wanted to ask. Your book is called Behind Frenemy Lines. I would love to know, how do you define frenemy? What is that? Okay, so when I did my research, so I'll pop it up here. Behind frenemy lines, I don't know how that pops up or not, but I was doing research about frenemy and my mom goes, is that really a real word? Never heard of it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that is a real word. So the father of psychology, Sigmund Freud, like he used that term to describe himself. Like he has a a love and an enemy, a friend and an enemy. So it's a combination of the two and it's like a love-hate relationship. So the act of both. That's so interesting because when I think of frenemy, I think I associate it with like someone you pretend is your friend, but you really don't like deep down. Is that part of the definition too? Absolutely. It's somebody that you might feel like you're walking on eggshells. Like if you're all sitting at the table and you get up, you might think, what are they saying about me? And so all these things, these cliche things that you hear, if you're feeling those feels, that's not a true friend. I have a lot of women say, well, our kids, we've known each other since our kids were little, or I've known her since college. And I'll say, history is great, but friendships, just as other types of relationships evolve. And if you feel that you aren't fully yourself around this individual, if you feel like you're walking on eggshells, if you feel like you never know if this person is going to erupt or what they're going to do or talk about you, is it worth the relationship? Is it worth the angst and the anxiety and the shame and everything that you feel to and the energy to have a relationship with this person? It's hard to do, but sometimes you have to cut the cord because a friend of me is not traditionally a real friend. I'd love your tips on cutting the cord because <laughs> one person came to mind. <laughs> I think we all probably have them. But this was years ago, this one woman who I was friends with and still think about from time to time because I, I never addressed why I started distancing myself from her. And I felt bad about that, but I actually didn't feel safe addressing it with her. So it was easier for me to slowly let her slip away, like stop. You know, We weren't super close. So like it wasn't a big transition, but it was like she would invite me to things and I would say no or, you know, I would stop inviting her to things that I was doing and I would just stop kind of including her and checking in with her. And my heart felt bad about that because I don't want anyone to feel dismissed. But the reason I did that is because so many things started adding up. I felt incredibly resentful. And I also had experienced all these little like paper cuts or little moments that just didn't feel good. And I noticed other people saying similar things. And this is one of those examples of like, I felt like I wanted to gossip because we had so many mutual friends. And I learned through them that she was doing strange things to them too. And I thought, oh my gosh, this woman feels toxic. But it was hard to let her go because I was drawn to her for many years because she does have a really good heart. She's not a bad person, but she was doing things that did not feel good to me. She was doing things professionally to me and my friends that weren't quite right. I didn't want that in my life. 
So I'm curious, what are some ways to let people go? I mean, it seems to me obvious that you might want to have a conversation, but with her, I felt unsafe doing that because I didn't know how to explain to her why I no longer wanted her in my life. I was also kind of afraid, to be honest, that she would pit other people against me. And maybe that was part of the trauma of like some of my past situations, but I was a little nervous that she would like be a little revengeful or something. So how do you let go of somebody when you don't even feel comfortable enough expressing that? Like, is it okay to ghost them as they say now? Is it okay to slowly let it fade away? Is that a proper way to handle it for lack of a better way of asking? Or is there a better way to handle it so that you can cut the ties more yeah, I guess it's it's even hard to verbalize my question, but I'm sure you know what I mean. <laughs> no, I'm sitting here writing notes because I'm like, oh my God, you brought up so many. For one, I love the word paper cuts. I don't know why I had never thought of it in that term. I think that's such an appropriate description. Like that gave me the chills. I think my first thought is you always 100% have to listen to your gut. Your gut never lies. So cutting the cord is situational. I don't think there is a black and white answer. I don't think there's a one thing does it all. I think it depends on the person. I think it depends on your history, everything. So I've done both. Just recently, this is even hard to talk about. I went to have a hard conversation with somebody because it was a professional and a friendship. I value her deeply. I love her as a friend, but I was frustrated. And so I thought, I know myself, I'm very direct. If I don't bring it up, I don't want it to turn resentful because that's not fair to her. It's not fair to me. I want to bring it up. She's ghosted me. Done. And I baffled by it. I'm shocked by it. And it's again, it bothers me. I think about it and I'm perplexed by the behavior, but I have to keep going back. And this is something I've lately daily, I'm like, okay, I only have control over my action. I don't have control over her response or her actions. So it's hard. Another situation, I think it depends bringing it up to somebody. Chances are that that's a difficult conversation. Is somebody going to be receptive of you saying, we can't be friends anymore? No, chances are probably not. They're going to get defensive and It could get ugly, but I'm a firm believer too. You have to set the boundaries that are right for you. So if it's a slowly letting go, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because what's that saying? Their perception is their reality. They may never see things the way you see it. So in the instance I just told you about when I thought I was professionally and socially being a good friend by bringing this up, it was not well received at all. And I didn't go with it into, I wasn't pointing fingers. I was just saying, I felt, feel this. So you never know how somebody is going to respond or react, but I don't think there's anything wrong with slowly edging and slowly like doing less things together. The thing is, you can always go back and do more if you feel like, well, maybe that was just a moment in time and we're back, you know, it ebbs and flows like a roller coaster or whatever. But, and sometimes somebody is toxic and true colors come through and you just have to snip that baby and it's hard. But then in the long run, do you feel better or do you feel worse? And I think it's just your inner gut, your, that voice, it talks to you for a reason. And I'm a firm believer that it's usually spot on with what it's telling you. That's comforting to hear, you know, cause I think these dynamics, it's, 
easy to second guess yourself because I've also been on the receiving end of being ghosted by several friends. Some I repaired the friendships with years later. Some I never did and never heard from that person again. And and those are hard. They're almost as bad as romantic breakups. You know, it's really tough. And I've had little situation. I mean, actually, I've had so many of these various experiences with friends. Like I could, if I wrote them all down, I'd be surprised, you know, like it could be someone I've barely known and we just kind of stopped talking or it could be someone I've known for years. And to your point, it's nice to know that there's no one size fits all approach to it. And I think also it's very healing to hear that it's okay no matter how you do it, right? Because if you're following your heart and the experience that's authentic to you, that's probably the right answer versus like trying to research it and find out what's the best way to let go of a friend or cut tie with a friend, which is kind of my question. And I love your answer. I mean, sometimes I think we yearn for step-by-step instructions to do hard things, but there's so many nuances in these hard moments in our life that nobody could possibly guide us through them. And that might not be very comforting, but in a way, I think it is because then it gives you permission to do it however best suits you. Well, I think you also brought up a great point and it made me think of two things. The first thing is, and I've learned this recently through another friendship, how I communicate may be vastly different than how you communicate. So you might be on a different wave and that may just not work. And that's frustrating, but you can't change somebody's communication style. So when somebody ghosts, Maybe they're not ready to hear what I have to say, or maybe they see it totally different. I don't, that's a whole nother topic. But I think the other point is we talk so much, I think, in our society about relationships, like as romantic relationships, and you break up with this person or that person and blah, 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 and this is what you do, and this is how you do it, and blah, blah, blah. It's so hard to talk about friendship breakups. You don't hear that talked about as much. And I think it's just as hard if not harder at times, especially, you know, you go back to your BFF or that's probably changed over the years, depending on the phase and stage you are in in your life. But we don't talk about friendship breakups. It's like kind of a taboo topic. And I think that's sad. I think I put a little chapter in my book about, I think you it's okay to date friends. Like, you know, you put a lot of effort into your romantic partner. You date your partner. Why can't you date friends to see if they're a good fit or like networking groups or different things like get your date on like that's how you know if you're a good fit but breaking up with somebody is hard but it doesn't mean you're always going to be at that same level forever and does it mean you have ill will or wish them badly no not at all i think you can say hey this chapter might be coming to an end i love you i care about you from afar i just It's hard to be close to you right now. I love that idea of dating friends. (laughs) Can you also date coworkers? I I suppose you can. Like, can you do a trial at a job, you know, and see if you get along with the people there? I mean, that's all equally important too, if you're going to go into an office or even through my consulting work that I do now, I get to make my own schedule and kind of my own work rules, but my work still is about other people, you know. I People hire me to work with them. And just because they're paying me doesn't mean that they're a good fit. 
as a boss, as a client, as a colleague in some cases. And I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of wonderful people, but there have been times like there was this one guy that uh, it was for a, a brand sponsorship that I did a few years ago. And the product that I was promoting was great, but he was so challenging. I remember I was like, I just have to finish this project so I don't have to talk to this guy anymore. And I even at the time I had an assistant and I was like, I can't read any of his emails. I need you to do all the correspondence. I will answer questions to you, but I needed a mediator. You know, and I think that's worth touching upon too of how, in a lot of work environments, having someone in between you and another person is so valuable. You might not always be able to get it though. That's, that's the trick. But if you have the option to have someone mediate or someone in between you and another person, it is a game changer. So that's something that, that I've certainly learned. And I, I think that gives me clarity and, really taking the time to get to know people before I go into a long-term partnership. Again, given my current work, I have that ability that if I don't work well with somebody, I can get out of it really quickly. But is there a way to do that if you are signing up for a a job and you know you need the money and that's the only job you can have? Like what do you do in a situation where you don't get along with a coworker? Yeah, that's situational. So I think that is harder to vet than maybe it is to vet an organization. So like dating an organization, I would say, look at the social media they have out there. Look at their, you know, what their mission and vision statement is. Like just as a whole, are these philosophies that resonate with you? Are their ethics the same? You know, like it, it takes a little bit of time, but usually that stuff is pretty transparent, especially if they are a little bit bigger organization. One-on-one, that would be harder to know, but then maybe go on your LinkedIn and look and see like, do we have connections? Like maybe Sally knows somebody, but maybe I could talk to them and see what their perception uh, was or is working for that environment. You know, just like do as much of the research as you can. Individually, you know, people always Like when you're interviewing, I think people put on their best behavior. I hope that's not the case as much anymore that real people are shining through because they want people to stay, you know, like it's expensive to go through the interview process and hire. And so you don't want to just do it and have somebody want to leave. So you want it to be a good fit on both ends. But again, go with your gut. If you're interviewing with somebody that you know you're going to have to work closely with, granted, they're probably wearing their Sunday best during the interview, so you might not see the everyday clothes, go with your gut because it's worth it. I just saw some posts that I'm going to get this wrong, but the gal said the ethics weren't a fit. The money was like a huge paycheck, but I turned it down because I knew ultimately I could not work in that organization. Like I would kind of be selling myself. So There's different little ways you can go about it, but yeah. And then if it starts to happen and you're feeling angsty with somebody, talk with them one-on-one. And I agree, anytime you can get, it's harder, but somebody in there to, even if it's not a mediator, but to listen in on the conversations, it would be interesting to know if the behavior is the same or if it changes when there's somebody else around. Yeah. I love that idea of Slowing down and taking the time to do your research, I think is so key because we can get so drawn into the opportunity, the money, what it might mean for our future. And and some people may be able to tough out these situations. That's also 
when you're talking about the circumstantial side of it, it really depends on who you are. And maybe you do have thick skin. Maybe you're not as sensitive. Maybe you can handle these tough things or block them out. Amber, do you know about that Apple TV show called Severance that's on the air right now where it's about employees who get operations so that they are completely different. They don't remember their personal lives when they're at work and they don't remember work when they're out of work. Do you know about this show? No, but oh my God, (laughs) I need to. Yeah, I've heard the name, but I didn't know it was that directly. Yeah, I hope I didn't spoil it, but I think it's in the the trailer and the description. And I've watched a little bit of it, but I mean to go back. It's, it's, It's a really interestingly done show with a great cast. And the concept is so fascinating because I haven't gotten to the point of the show where like they really explain why and how they do this. And I think it's a bit of an experiment, but it's kind of like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind or people, you know, got uh, operations so they wouldn't remember people that they broke up with, you know? And I, I think there's like this human desire to kind of cut away our emotions. But I think one thing I've learned from you today, Amber, is that it's okay to feel those emotions and do your best to work through them and then really determine if the people that you're with personally and or professionally are not a good fit for your life. That's okay. And you can use the things that you teach to work through them or move past them and transition into a better situation. And I would love to know, Amber, how you do that with clients. Like if someone's listening to this episode and wants to learn more, they, you have your wonderful book behind Frenemy Lines. And what else do you do that can support people through these tough times? I have a newsletter that I send out with blogs and just tips and tricks about this behavior. I give a lot of talks and workshops. I've done actually book clubs too. If, if there are groups out there that want a good juicy book club, this has been a fun one to talk about in a book club setting. I've done that virtually too. I'm also, I'm available for one-on-one if somebody's, you know, knee deep in a, this type of behavior, but I also am leaning more towards the organizational work. I think it's very prevalent in organizations, but I'm always happy to talk to somebody about this because I know how devastating the behavior can be. And you brought up a good point, like that show Severance is fascinating to me, but I think in the research, what I've learned is while this sucks when you're in it and it can have all the feels and it's a nasty behavior, I think what I've hugely learned from most of the women I've interviewed or talked about this topic with is that you know who you do not want to be. So you rise and overcome. And it's in that that you win. And so that's how we become better together. Taking a negative situation, will it be a positive one? No, but you could turn it into that what you don't want to be. And you can mentor if you know, like, especially as you grow and develop, and maybe you're leading a team or an organization or a group or in a management position, you can showcase the behaviors of positivity versus, you know, the negative behaviors. And so in instilling a psychologically safe environment where you're actively communicating, you have bystander training, you're promoting self-awareness, all of these things that help everybody be better together. And so as you can probably tell, it's a topic I'm hugely passionate about because I think we have work to do in social and organizational settings to overcome it, but I believe we'll get there. Well, thanks to people like you, I think we have a better chance of doing that successfully. And I'm so grateful that you took the time today to share these things and 
guide people through tough situations that may not get acknowledged nearly enough. I love your Instagram too. You have so many great points on there and even bringing up the taboo subject matters. I think like on a platform like Instagram where you can easily fall into the comparison trap, having reminders from someone like you that you're not alone and here are ways to work through it. Getting perspective is so wonderful. So thank you for doing this work, Amber. And I can't wait to continue following the evolution of everything that you learn and teach along the way. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate you having me as a guest on your show. This has been a great topic and I'm thankful to be here. Well, for the listener, if you would like to get a copy of Amber's book, I will link that along with her bio and other links to her Instagram over at wellevator.com in the show notes. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a full transcript. There are quotes. There'll be a video up there eventually and making everything really easy for you to learn more about this and get in touch with Amber. So thank you for listening. Thanks for Amber. Thanks to Amber for being here today. And I'll be back in just a few days with another episode. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.